Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog. G- Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone. It is Charles Marshall here in sunny San Diego, California. It is September 9th, 2021, and as I so often do, and as I always appreciate, I have uh, Bill Padlow with me today on the show. Welcome, Bill. Hello again, Charles. So here we are in uh, the latter uh, coming up quarter of the year. Still in the glow of summer, I think, in the vast majority of the country. Certainly are, things are certainly that way in San Diego. Uh, Though it has been a somewhat mild summer, which I can't complain about. Uh, So what we will be talking about today, we'll be doing a COVID update later. Uh, What Bill's going to get into originally uh, concerns what we really could describe kind of colloquially, colloquially and informally. And again, this is not a legal description. I'm not uh, legally impugning any institutional players out there. They may deserve some impugning, but that's not what we're doing on the show today. And uh, for those who are out there in the institutional world listening in today, welcome to you as well. So what Bill's going to be getting into is what he's describing, and I think he describes this very well in a blog post that he did uh, yesterday on his blog. And it's essentially going into the way that uh, servicers specifically are evading state laws because if they were presenting their representation of specific loans as coming under their you know, mortgage servicing status, that would mean that these loans would subject them, the servicer, to various state laws. And these state laws are uh, very common around the country. Remember, there's something called model rules that was uh, <clears throat> they're kind of a set of rules. All attorneys learn about this in law school, and some corporate people as well will will get kind of uh, an education at some point about the model rules of various legal areas. And it's a kind of corporate uh, driven and 
from the top-down administrative-driven uh, policy whereby decades ago, uh, you know, bar associations around the country, including the American Bar Association, spent a lot of time and effort in getting model rules to be promulgated around the country. And one of those sets of rules has to do with uh, licensing. And that has certainly uh, distributed its way around the country into, I would say, the vast majority of states have similar laws to what we're going to be describing. I know California does. And essentially, the precise wording of what I'm talking about is that you are a mortgage servicer in a state. Now, if you are dealing with loans that uh, involve the purchase, the holding, the enforcement, or the selling of residential mortgage loans, then you need to maintain licenses in the jurisdiction that you're operating in. However, if you can essentially assign the legal interest and even somehow sometimes even though you're you're retaining for some purposes the servicing rights, you assign the named interest that's going to show up on public documents and public and, and registrations with public agencies. You go with let's say a national bank like US Bank or Deutsche Bank, these big national banks, Chase Bank, Wells Fargo, we're all familiar with those from the securitized trust. And, of course, many of these loans that I'm describing are in securitized trust. They were either securitized years ago, like the Chase Wamu ones that we've talked about many times, or uh, even more recently, some of these trusts are securitized, some are not. But there's a situation where a lot of loans are assigned with the kind of named entity being a national bank or some other national corporate entity. And the reason for doing this is, again, colloquially, to evade state laws. Uh, because national associations typically do not have to register with states for a lot of financial servicing purposes. Of course, that's a complicated area of law. Of course, there are exceptions. But nevertheless, there's a lot that goes on in this entire area, and I'm going to let Phil now jump in, and he will be able to provide further details on this important topic. Uh, thanks, Charles. <clears throat> well, yeah, much of the uh, underlying uh, issue here uh, really stems from the early days after the crash when you have all these different derivatives and things that were coming out as a, a result of the contracts and the original so-called securitization trust with these advanced receivables, uh, mortgage servicer rights and advances that they were making to the investors um, on a regular basis and the reimbursement of those advances. And so a lot of these parties who um, saw opportunities, kind of uh, these, these vulture capitals, whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, beginning in the early days of 2012, 2013, roughly, um, they came up with um, a bunch of strategies, really, I guess you could say, in, in how to capitalize 
on investing in these um, types of derivatives, right? And they didn't really understand, or at least maybe they did understand to a great degree that there were so many laws and regulations that varied amongst the states that in order to move quickly and in order to uh, capitalize and profit from the foreclosure boom and all the things related to uh, distressed debts and mortgage-backed securities and foreclosures, um, they really admit, and it's all kind of in a lot of their risk factors in the SEC filings, of just how complicated it would be to uh, and time-consuming to jump through all the hurdles to get uh, regulatory approvals and to uh, get all the licensing and all the things that were required um, of them to service and acquire these properties and do what they're doing. And so one of the primary entities that is behind uh, for, for years now and currently uh, and that has been growing and getting bigger in the, is one of the hidden parties in all their subsidiaries in most of these foreclosure transactions is an entity called New Residential Investment Corp. And if you go to the SEC and you look at that entity, that they keep increasing their numbers of subsidiaries, and those subsidiaries are all kinds of newfangled named Delaware uh, trusts and all kinds of stuff um, under their umbrella. And uh, if you go back, and I posted yesterday, what I was really trying to point out is that in their annual report, and this is the same language that they put into their 10Ks in the um, SEC filings, but there was a, a sort of a risk factor that they talked about that really spells out a great example of how they were using the so-called uh, quote-unquote rented charter scheme because they spell out right in there that certain jurisdictions require license to purchase, hold, enforce, or sell residential mortgage loans, and we currently do not hold any such licenses. They go on to state in lieu of obtaining such licenses, we may contribute our acquired residential mortgage loans to one or more wholly owned trusts whose trustee is a national bank, which may be exempt from state licensing requirements. If these subsidiaries obtain the required licenses, any trust holding loans in the applicable jurisdictions may transfer such loans to such subsidiaries, subsidiaries resulting in these loans being held by a state licensed entity. There can be no assurance that we will be able to obtain the requisite licenses in a timely manner or at all in these necessary jurisdictions. So, what they're kind of spelling out there, they found a loophole. They were going to try to create some paperwork to throw it to uh, one of these trusts with a national chartered bank as a trustee to evade these um, uh, licensing requirements, especially when it comes to servicing. Now, of course, they, there's many other laws that they – uh, I've written about that they're uh, circumventing as well using those national charters, one of which is that these business trusts in most states are required to register and, and uh, pay, file tax returns in every state, so on and so forth. So they've been hiding and using that national charter for all kinds of reasons. But anyway, um, these MSRs and the buying and trading of them um, is, 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 is a huge, huge, huge business, and there are many, many players under this especially new residential investment corp umbrella who are dealing and buying these mortgage servicing rights and acquiring them. Now, 
my research is showing that the licensing uh, for servicers in most states, like California, is showing that even if you're an indirect servicer, so that, that, that involves sub-servicers, master servicers, even parties that aren't taking an active role in communication with, communication with the homeowners or whatnot, even if they're just simply holding the rights and overseeing a subservicer, for example, they're technically a servicer required to be licensed. And so one of the things that they've been getting around is they use a large national servicing firm, such as I'll use the name NationStar because I got some good stuff on them, uh, who continues to service as really a subservicer on behalf of these parties who NationStar sold their mortgage servicing rights completely and their advanced receivable rights to the loans they were servicing for these for a whole laundry list of trusts uh, back in the 2000s, they, sold, they completely sold those rights per the servicing agreement. So, for example, you take XYZ Trust, uh, U.S. Bank as trustee of a 2005 uh, whatever trust, um, and they'll have a pooling and servicing agreement and the servicing agreements and everything related to that. And NationStar would claim to be the servicer on behalf of that 2005 series trust. Well, in 2014, NationStar sold all of its servicing rights under those servicing agreements, including the advanced receivable rights, to uh, one of the uh, subsidiaries of New Residential. And they, and they reference uh, all of the servicing agreements and PSAs and things of that nature that uh, they were selling. And therefore, within those contracts uh, to sell those servicing rights, the trustees for all these older series, you know, XYZ 2005 trust, they had to get consent agreements from them. They had to notice them and get consent agreements that, look, this, the sale of these assets or whatever are being sold and transferred. Now, what does that mean? Uh, it means a lot when it comes to NationStar, for example, coming in and saying, we are the... Uh, a servicer under a power of attorney uh, for this 2005 XYZ Trust, for example, and that's who we're foreclosing and acting on behalf. Well, that's not true because, again, it's very clear in um, the contracts and whatnot that, that they sold any rights to service the loans. They don't control that anymore on behalf of the old original trust. Right? So, I have an interesting case. I, it was, I was uh, prepared to testify in trial last week down in Florida, and the uh, the trial got uh, temporarily stayed for a time being. Um, but uh, where we where we kind of left off, it was kind of interesting. Nation Star, and I think this applies to to a lot of folks, and it's, it's a little bit of a side issue here, but um, it really talks about uh, or points out, I should say. NationStar's reliance on uh, pooling and servicing agreements as business records. And why I say that is uh, lately I've been gathering a lot of uh, testimony and uh, deposition transcripts, all of that stuff from some of the high upset NationStar. And they make it very clear uh, that they need three things, especially in judicial states to foreclose, to prove their standing. One is they need to have the original note Two, they say they have to have the pooling and servicing agreement. And the third requisite to proving their standing is the limited power of attorney. Well, 
we always talk about the pooling and servicing agreement and question them about that in depositions, and it's very interesting because, of course, they don't have any personal knowledge of that. But what really came out that was interesting is what we pointed out in the trial last week is that the pooling and servicing agreement that they tried to enter into the record as the authoritative document that gave them the rights to service and file the complaint, so on and so forth, not only was it not executed, uh, had no signatures, no notary acknowledgments or anything of that nature, but they admitted that uh, they printed that document right off the SEC Edgar website and they uh, scanned it into their nation star servicing system and they said and claimed and argued that that made it a business record. So, so it's kind of laughable because the judge didn't buy that and actually said, why don't you have a produced certified copy? That doesn't make any sense. And um, anyway, he disallowed the PSA into evidence, which was, which was a big blow uh, before uh, things got put on stake. But my point is, is that NationStar is making it a point to say that as a, appears to be their business model, that when they reference these pooling and servicing agreements, one of the three things that they claim they need to gain standing, they're simply outsourcing it and pulling it off the SEC and scanning it into the record. So, my, you know, my point is, uh, and that one, Charles, is, I mean, I'm a business. I do research. I, I go to the SEC website to review this stuff. What's the, I guess I, I can print it off and make it a part of my business record, and then I guess I can speak and attest to it in court as well if that's, if that's what they're saying and that's what, they, what they're trying to get away with. So anyway, great, uh, a great uh, situation where it got struck down for pretty much being hearsay and um, kind of exposing them on that issue. Now, uh, going back to these uh, uh, MSRs, a clue came out. Um, I'm working a number of cases right now, and, and, and things are becoming much more crystal clear, especially when it comes to NationStar. But um, clues are coming out now that are exposing the big lie. And, uh, and, and when NationStar is now coming in in these foreclosure actions, and they're claiming that they uh, – here's my, my power of attorney from whoever, U.S. Bank or Deutsche or whoever the national trust uh, entity is – who's acting as trustee for one of these old trusts to which they sold the servicing rights, we can now show that they're being untruthful not, and, and they don't have that authority. They sold that authority. And there's actual parties now that we can or I can identify having uh, started to dig into this uh, that are great targets for subpoenas. They're great targets for questioning uh, the uh, nation star witnesses now to basically uncover and unseal the fact that they are uh, under contract with completely different entities, with completely different motivations, and completely different, um, uh, well, they're the ones, different entities are pulling the strings. Uh, entities that are being, unconce are being concealed from the homeowners, being concealed from the courts under law, um, and uh, they're pulling the strings and telling NationStar what to do uh, each and every step of the way. And so um, I think what we're going to see here, uh, Charles, in the very near future, as we start to really get into this now knowing what we know, is that if we aggressively now 
create that strategy and discovery and to go after them in depositions or whatnot and start demanding very specific information. I think um, they're, they're, they're going to be on the run here a bit and have a hard time explaining um, a lot of the tricks that they've been getting away with up until now. Charles? Yeah, that's a really good input, uh, especially uh, with your emphasis just now on the discovery component. Uh, and written discovery can be used in as much as a lot of the initial responses typically from the institutional players are going to be routinely non-responsive and, and really uh, manipulated in a, in a legal way which won't and shouldn't pass muster ultimately but will be a way of get them getting away with the first round of discovery. So, yeah, it does take a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time and follow-up to get the written discovery to produce uh, what's often a lack of proper response that then can be used in an evidentiary way uh, to prove at certain points in the case. And then in a perfect world, depositions are done. That, of course, is even a lot more expensive. Where it's doable in a specific uh, foreclosure case, whether it's a judicial foreclosure against the homeowner or it's a plaintiff's non-judicial foreclosure like here in California, being able to do a deposition of who's considered the person most knowledgeable would be the corporate officer at a specific institutional, be it a nominal trust, a U.S. bank type trust, if, uh, if it's a U.S. bank loan or uh, the servicer, which yes, Nation Star, uh, is in a lot of cases and is causing a lot of havoc continually. Um, and I will say that Neil has some good take on this in his write-up and his blog today. I mean, he points out quite rightly that um, consumers uh, are getting even more kind of behind the eight ball in, in this situation because even the judges are presuming where the assignments are all manipulated in such a way that what would otherwise be required at a state registration level is not even being required. Uh, because it is the case in a number of these assignments, as uh, listeners will know, that there often are assignment problems uh, related to institutional players that haven't registered properly whose registration status has expired, uh, that type of thing. And not a side issue, but a component of that is how states like California, and this is typical of non-judicial foreclosure states, will often treat those failures uh, of registration or failures to follow the proper rules or failures to keep a license current or to be in a tax uh, a tax violation status where they had problems with the FTB, Franchise Tax Board, here in California. All those things should be major violations, but they're often treated as making the underlying loan transaction merely voidable, not void, which, of course, is a major problem for borrowers when they're trying to prove out their case in a trial setting. Uh, nevertheless, I think that's a really 
well taken uh, point from Neil that the institutional players are definitely using this whole loose that uh, Bill has been talking about to basically sanitize and make it look like their assignments are cleaner than they are and that they're real when they are. Um, but getting on to the COVID fronts, uh, I think the vaccine situation, is, as much as that might seem like a side issue, and it's certainly not central to the show to be talking about that type of thing, but it is coming up as a court access issue, and Los Angeles County is requiring basically all parties, attorneys, their clients, members of the public, witnesses who come in, a lot of L.A. County courts are back live, so to speak, and in person. Now, this is not completely uniform. Whenever I talk about any of these scenarios, whether it's California or elsewhere, COVID rule-related, the listeners always need to check uh, with their local jurisdiction and kind of check multiple news sources to get the latest. However, there is a trend. Uh, in San Diego, it's a little more complicated than what I'm relating for L.A. San Francisco is similar to L.A., where you either have to, you know, you either have to show vaccine status or, uh, you know, hypothetically, you can still show um, a negative COVID test. So, again, the rules are quite variable. So this is going to be an issue going forward. A lot of San Diego court proceedings are still largely remote. Uh, again, that's the sort of thing that can change on a monthly basis or even weekly. Um, so depending on where you are in the country, there are, of course, states like Texas and Florida, and I believe Montana, uh, where you are, Bill, is, is one of them. Uh, that essentially forbid vaccine mandates. Uh, it's a little right. more complicated when you're talking about federal courts because then you have federal jurisdiction supplanting that, and the federal courts are all moving in the direction, uh, I believe it's safe to say, of vaccine mandates. So, again, whatever listeners' perspectives are about those mandates, and uh, there are certainly good arguments that can be made for and against, they are not just coming, they are here now and they're in process and they're becoming more obtrusive and it's just something I think we're going to need to be dealing with. Um, on the moratorium front, there is still a lot going on there that's in flux. Um, you know, some states like Texas are largely completely beyond that. Uh, California and New York still have a somewhat robust moratorium, though it's breaking down for those in foreclosure because in California, San Diego County was the only county that actually enshrined into their local COVID ordinance that the eviction moratorium specifically applied to formally foreclosed uh, homeowners. Problem with that ordinance is one, it didn't go into effect until early June 2021, meaning probably a couple of months ago. And two, it went out of effect literally in mid-August. So it 
didn't have a lot of play and traction. I was looking to see that it might be taken up by other counties, but I have not seen that yet. And now we're coming potentially to the end of moratoriums in, uh, in California. And as I've also said on the show, and I'll reiterate, you know, all of these issues are very vexed. They're, they're going to impact people in different ways. A lot of our listeners, uh, even though it's a minority of our listeners, it's still a significant number. They do own rental property themselves. Mom and pop retail landlords, and they've been heavily impacted by these moratoriums. So there is um, still at the state level moratorium till the end of September in California. The national eviction moratorium was struck down by the Supreme Court, though seems to be hobbling on in some federal jurisdictions. Um, so again, I think listeners need to follow up. Meanwhile, Neil will be back next week. And thanks again for joining me, Bill. My pleasure. Have a good weekend, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.